what did you say? It's helpful, but say it less awkwardly. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, that's what they get. I am awkward. Okay, that's fine. Hi, I'm Tanya. And I'm Rachel. And this is Healthy Rituals, a podcast to help you develop and maintain habits for wellness in mind, body, and spirit. It's also where we chat about stories from our lives and our own little rituals. In this episode, we discuss all the reasons sleep is important, the challenges we have to a good night's sleep, and some tips and tricks to stay on track for a good night time routine. We're back. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, we're back. I just have a bunch of random stuff written down, so. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. We're talking about sleep, so... I guess we will probably want to cover why sleep matters. We can also cover different ways to cope with the challenges of not getting enough sleep and or how to improve sleep or better facilitate sleep. What else do you want to cover? I want to talk about routines before bed and the benefits or lack thereof of taking little naps throughout the day or what did you call it i forget what you called it restorative downtime which is different than a nap but kind of the same <laughs> okay like how have you been sleeping lately i wasn't sleeping very well the past couple of weeks mostly just stress stress and anxiety related so feeling tired being tired but then not being able to get myself into that sort of relaxed state in my brain to actually fall asleep but the last couple days uh, I started taking therapeutic dose of magnesium so I've been taking like 800 milligrams of magnesium before bedtime which is kind of a lot but I've gotten really good sleep the last like two nights so that's felt really good I would say that overall typically I'm a pretty good sleeper I don't usually have too many problems falling asleep outside of what I know will disrupt my sleep if I don't do them then I don't have problems like what um, like what would it be like drinking alcohol staying up too late what is it that throws you off your routine if I have caffeine too late in the day then that'll keep me awake I'm a slow metabolizer of caffeine, so it stays with me for a really long time. So if I have caffeine like after noon or one o'clock, then it'll disrupt my sleep. So alcohol disrupts sleep no matter what. For the most part, in terms of alcohol, um, alcohol really just creates fragmented sleep. It also impairs your airway muscle tone, kind of like that obstructive sleep apnea type thing that's going on. but it impairs that muscle in your throat, makes it difficult to like get steady oxygen flow. So you are not breathing well, and that can also contribute to the fragmented sleep. It's interesting because uh, a lot of people, it's very common for people to say like, oh, well, if I have a glass of wine or a glass of whatever, you know, it'll help me, it'll help relax me and puts me in the mood to go to bed. And that relaxation piece may be true, but on a physiological level, your body does not do well with alcohol for, for sleep. It, it disrupts it, it impairs the quality, and so alcohol is no good. For myself, if I drink, I don't have a problem falling asleep, but I do find that I'll wake up multiple times throughout the night, which will also happen if I drink a giant glass of tea right before bed. <laughs> so my intention might be, oh, I'm going to have some chamomile or sleepy time tea to like relax myself. But you should really try to not drink any fluids like about two to three hours before bedtime because you will need to wake up to pee depending on how many, you know, how much you drank will determine how many times you have to wake up and go. But that disrupts your sleep as well. So let's see, drinking fluids or alcohol before bed caffeine for me it's the sugar if i have 
a sweet or if I have a non-alcoholic cocktail that has a little bit of sugar in it, besides the fact that I'll need to wake up and use the restroom in the middle of the night, I find that I definitely don't get as relaxing as a good night's rest. Gone a little bit overboard with the dessert too late in the evening. I try not to eat anything past like 9 or 9.30. Yeah, eating too close to bed is a pretty common one for a lot of people that can disrupt their sleep. Could be specific things, could be the quantity, but that will definitely impact it. I think something kind of coupled into that is light. If I'm working on the computer and I have all my lights on in the house at like midnight, like I'm not going to bed anytime soon. I can't just turn off the lights and lay down and expect to go directly to sleep. It will take like a couple hours to make that happen. And that's just, you have essentially two hormones or chemicals that work opposite of each other that help regulate your sleep and your circadian rhythm. So you've got melatonin and you have cortisol. And so cortisol is meant to be high in the morning and melatonin is meant to be low because cortisol gets you up and gets you going. It helps facilitate the process of dumping glucose in the blood, which is energy. So you're up and and, uh, cortisol is meant to be high in the morning. And then throughout the day, it comes down. And part of what stimulates that is light. And opposite to that is you have melatonin. So as the day goes on during the day, that stimulus of light coming through your through your eyes suppresses the production of melatonin in your body. So as the day goes on and it's naturally getting darker, your melatonin starts to rise because your body's able to produce it. But if you're exposing yourself to constant light throughout the day, your body's not able to produce enough melatonin on its own to get you into that space ready for sleep. Making sure that one, you expose yourself to light in the morning, which is really important. A lot of people sometimes depending on their schedule, if they wake up before the sun comes up, they get to work and then they're in a building all day. And maybe the first light they see is around three or four in the afternoon. That can really mess up someone's sleep cycle. But if they're able to kind of get out, get some fresh air and some light first thing in the morning, that sort of helps set their rhythm for the day. Their body knows, oh, it's light out now. And it kind of starts running its own timeline of things, just like in the evening, you want to start dimming your lights and turning them off and making it more dark to start facilitating that production of melatonin so that your body again gets the right signal of, okay, now it's the end of the day. It's time for me to start winding down and I want to go to bed and do that whole process. So I find that my body's pretty sensitive to a lot of things. (laughs) I'm just a highly sensitive person on all levels. (laughs) I probably am too, but I've actually, I ignore a lot of my body's signs. I feel like as far as first thing in the morning, I do have lots of natural light coming in. So, but I don't actually walk outside in the morning. Uh, You know, my first thing I do is I go grab my cup of coffee and I, you know, boot up the computer and yeah, it, it may be a while before I actually completely wake up. So that is a good tip to go outside and walk around for a minute. I think in the fall when the when we go through daylight saving, it's difficult because the whole cycle gets thrown off for a little while. And depending on where you live, I mean, here on the East Coast, the days during the winter time, fall and winter, I mean, they get very, very short. And a recommendation that's come through across a few mentors and just in researching on my own is using uh, like a therapeutic light box. So you can do light therapy for yourself in the morning time. And this can be helpful too, if you say you have like a fairly normal, like you wake up at 6am and then you start your day somewhere around eight or nine or something like that. But in the wintertime, if you're waking up at 6am, it could very well still be dark outside. And so that can throw things off for your body where you can use a therapeutic light box where you wake up and you sit in front of that light for like 10, 15 minutes or so, five, somewhere between like five and 15 minutes. And it's full spectrum light. And it basically helps set your circadian rhythm just as 
you were having like a regular day because it's important for waking your body up. If your body doesn't wake up, then you have that sort of drowsy, groggy, brain foggish kind of day, all day, right? And then you walk outside and you're like, oh, and now it's dark. So it's like literally been dark all day. Like, what am I, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing yeah. with my life? <laughs> <laughs> That's a different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. We'll save that one well, for next time. Yeah. Well, no. So that's interesting. And then the idea that you've been in a brain fog for most of the day and then you don't get another good night's sleep. And have you heard of this concept of sleep debt where several times in a row you don't get a good night's sleep? Like it's cumulative and it just does a lot of damage for your body to not get a good night's sleep several days in a row. Yeah. So sleep debt is an interesting concept because technically you, you, you can't catch up on sleep per se. Like it's not that you miss out on sleep and that you can just sort of make up for it. Sleep deprivation is actually defined as sleep less than seven hours. So many, many people are sleep deprived, not really knowing it. On average, I think Americans are getting somewhere between like six hours and 13 minutes or six hours and 45 minutes of sleep. As a population, we're essentially sleep deprived. And so depending on how long this is occurring and what your day-to-day routine is, what your schedule's like, you can start having sleep deprivation symptoms pop up all over the place. I mean, clear it starts with just drowsiness and tiredness and fatigue, but that sleep deprivation or that sleep debt, I mean, it's going to negatively impact your immune system. You then have a higher risk of getting sick. For some people, it can impact all different kinds of health issues because, again, if you're sleep deprived, that is a stressful state for your body. And so where there's stress or chronic stress, there's inflammation, chronic inflammation. We know that's the driving force behind every single chronic disease there is. So again, that becomes a point of intervention for people trying to manage disease states. We see how it impacts the brain and cognition. You have trouble paying attention. You have difficulty comprehending. You have difficulty problem solving and critical thinking all those things kind of go out the window. It affects your ability to operate machinery like your car, <laughs> right? Or just my computer. Uh, or just all <laughs> things. Trying to write an email and I'm like, oh, that didn't make any sense. <laughs> Sometimes I literally think I'm just hitting keys on my keyboard. I was like, what am I typing? What am I? It's like, I'm just hitting the delete button like every other button. It was pretty bad. But the other day I was out I was up I was up past my bedtime and I was very tired the next day and I took a nice cold shower to wake myself up which did work but then while I was drying my hair I don't know what I did but I got like the bottom of my hair stuck in the back of the hair dryer <laughs> so you should not operate any kind of machinery when you're tired what would you say would be like other challenges for not getting sleep and besides stress, like what else can cause sleep debt? I mean, it, it really just depends on the person. If you have an uncomfortable bed and you're not able to get your body into a comfortable position, some have sleep disorders, insomnia, and things like that will impact sleep. Sometimes it can be physical or mechanical, like sleep apnea, where you're not breathing appropriately, poor oxygen flow. That can be another issue. It could be that you have a partner that you share a bed with and is not a good sleeping partner for you. Maybe their schedule is different than yours. Maybe they toss and turn. Maybe they like the room to be a different temperature. They like a different softness of bed. They snore, they smell, whatever. I mean, it could be a number of things. <laughs> yeah, it's taken many years for my partner and I to get the perfect cozy sleeping situation where he's got enough airflow. He's able to where you're not choking him yeah. in his sleep or yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause I love being warm in the room, but he prefers the room being cold and then putting a lot of blankets on the bed. And I found that I would start sweating if I had too many blankets on the bed. And he does 
have a heavy breathing. And so I just sleep with earplugs every night. <laughs> it works great. His, his breathing keeps you awake. Well, it's, it's, like a, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like a wheezing. And a, sometimes it goes into a snore, but not all the time. But if I have earplugs, then it's just enough barrier that I can block all of that out. And then we have blackout curtains because I hate light in the evening. And yeah. so I blackout you know, the bedroom light. That's my way to survive. <laughs> yes. So the optimal sleep temperature is actually 65 degrees. Mm -hmm. So your body does better in a cool room to mm -hmm. sleep. Your your body has to drop, I think, to its core temperature has to drop by, I think it's like two degrees for you to actually fall asleep. So it makes sense for most people. I, I need it to be cold. I can't sleep if it's warm or if it's hot. Light, again, that's another big one for me. I don't have blackout curtains, but I'm able to make it dark enough and then I just like face the other wall. I can't sleep facing the window or I'll just stare out the window like all night long. Just like, oh, that's so nice out. Like, look at the stars. That's important. Another thing that I found, there is some research out there that talks about the radio frequency through the air. So having all that air pollution from Wi-Fi signals and cell phone signals and all of that. So like having something like your wireless router in your bedroom is not a good idea. So I moved mine out into my living room and then I turned my cell phone into airplane mode when I go to sleep. And I do feel like I sleep better now without that stuff in my room, which is funny because it makes me think of your brother because I remember years ago. Oh no, it still affects him. It still affects him. He believes yeah. that the Wi-Fi signals from everything in the house affects his, his brain. Which yeah, so it's not easy to disprove, so we just accept it. <laughs> well, now there's actually research that supports it, and there's actually companies that make special paint that blocks those waves, so he could paint his room, and that would help too, as far as like outside. Well, stuff. Your mom made him a special coat with like RFID blocking material. So if he was oh, really wow. feeling affected, he could put the hood on and everything and like cover himself up. Yeah. And things like that. I mean, even just along like with sleep deprivation, I mean, that's going to impact mood, depression, anxiety, all of those things as well. So, but that was a big one. And um, I remember, like I said, like years ago when he was telling me about that, I was like, what? I was like, "You're that's nuts. <laughs> like, no. And now years later, here I am. I'm like, oh, no, I got to turn all these off and put them get them out <laughs> yeah get them out of my room I think that's a good idea because I definitely I do have my phone and my iPad in the room and I probably should put them on airplane mode while I'm sleeping yeah I mean I know you're not supposed to be looking at any type of blue light or device before bed and that is definitely one of the habits I have it's really difficult to break especially because I read at night on my iPad oh, Rachel. <laughs> well a lot of devices now have the you can set the mode, the night mode, where it starts blocking that light out, makes your screen more yellow. Mm -hmm. Or your brother had the covers mm -hmm. for a long time that go over the screen. I have blue light blocking glasses that I use, and I'll wear those at night, especially if I'm working on the computer or if I'm doing stuff on my laptop in bed, which is another no-no. <laughs> Don't work in bed. <laughs> yeah, but... and then the TV is a big, giant LED screen as well in the living room. Yep. So. No, no TV in the bedroom. No, there's yeah. no TV in the bedroom, but it's it's in the living room. And it's big and it's bright. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, so just doing things like setting things to night mode or even just dimming the backlight can be helpful if you're watching TV in the evening, just making the screen darker. They usually have a calibrated dark option for most, most TVs, smart TVs. That can be a really smart approach as well. But the temperature one is an interesting one. And I hear quite frequently from couples the fight of the temperature in the room for for sleeping and there's this really cool device or thing it's called the chili pad 
and it's like a pad that goes over your mattress. I think it has water in it and you can actually set temperature, different temperatures to different sides of the bed. So if Rob wants his bed cold with extra blankets on his side, he could do that. And if you want your bed warmer with less blankets, you could do that and still be <laughs> on the same mattress. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. So they've got a lot of things on the market now to, to help with sleep because it's important. If you're ever interested in lectures or TED Talks or books, uh, Matthew Walker, he's a British neuroscientist and he runs the Sleep Center out of UC Berkeley. He wrote the book, Why We Sleep, I believe it's called, but he's phenomenal talks about all things sleep. In one of the classes that I teach, I play one of his TED Talks he goes through a few of the different aspects of health that sleep will impact if you're not getting enough sleep and so forth. And just because you mentioned it earlier, he does talk about daylight savings. And he says that when we shorten our day, that when you have to set your clock back and you lose an hour of sleep, the incidence of heart attack goes up. When you set your clock forward, and you gain an hour of sleep, it goes down. I think it was also an increase of car accidents mm -hmm. that they saw. But he was essentially talking about how, as a population, change the sleep cycle and people get less sleep altogether, that you see it impacted across the board with these things. So I thought that was really interesting. Cool. Why don't we talk about all the reasons sleep is important? <laughs> I think we went through quite a few of them. I mean, we can kind of go, we can start from the top and go down like sure. for your brain health. So sleep is incredibly important for brain health, for reducing neuroinflammation, for making sure that you've got good motor skills, good cognition, good comprehension, emotional regulation, all of those things can be impacted if you're not getting enough sleep. We start traveling down. So the circadian rhythm, it houses the sleep-wake cycle. It also houses the digestive schedule. So your rest and digest schedule falls along the line of your sleep-wake cycle. Again, for having those heavy meals or a lot of stuff before bedtime that can throw your rhythm off because it's unfortunately not the way your body's meant to efficiently and optimally operate. So that can cause issues. We start traveling down into the center of the body. You know, we've got digestion. We also have all our internal organs. So like I said, if you're not getting good sleep or not getting enough sleep, then we've got chronic stress occurring, which is going to increase systemic inflammation, which can then start triggering the onset of autoimmune diseases, various chronic diseases, which could be very bad. And a lot of that is just sort of on one hand dependent on what you're genetically predisposed to and what your lifestyle is all around. If you've got a lot of other areas of your health and your lifestyle that aren't doing so well, then again, it's going to increase your risk for other things popping up that you might not want to pop up. Sleep is going to impact hormonal regulation. So you can go down into the sex organs and all of those things. I mean, if we're sleep deprived, then again, this gets coupled into stress, but it can throw hormone balance off. And if that's off and you're stressed, then your body's basically saying, hey, we don't want to make babies. Like you can see a decline in your sex drive. You can have your cycle thrown off. You can see fertility take a dive. So it can impact impact that area as well. And then just overall for your body in general, when we start thinking about muscles and limbs and repair and recovery. So when you're sleeping, HGH or human growth hormone, that's when 75% of that hormone is, is produced in your body. So HGH is important for muscle and tissue repair. If you're trying to work out or just sort of sustain some sort of healthy lifestyle on a physical level, Level, not getting enough sleep is a huge setback in terms of your physical activity goals. Having that time to rest and repair and recover is really important as well. 
from the top down, sleep really impacts every facet of, of your health. It's extremely important. We want to loop back to digestion. So sleep deprivation can also increase cravings, appetite, and the propensity for weight gain. And they all sort of couple with each other. When we're sleep deprived, we can see a decrease in leptin and an increase in ghrelin. And when we think about what that looks like, what those changes look like in terms of calories, a sleep deprived person essentially consuming about 400 to 550 additional calories per day, which is essentially an extra meal. You have that aspect. And then due to cortisol and your stress hormones, you also get these super nasty cravings for all those comfort foods, sugary, high fat, high saturated fat, rich, comforting stuff. Like if you've ever thought about a night where you went out, stayed up too late, maybe you were drinking, you went to sleep, you woke up, you felt like crap. And then the first thing that you want to do is go to like Denny's and eat like a grilled cheese sandwich with ham and some scrambled eggs with a side of sausage and maybe some extra bacon. Then let's have some toast. And then like a massive cup of coffee with like whatever. (laughs) It's like... It's just bad on top of bad on top of bad on top of bad. Our body is just essentially out of whack. And when that happens, these changes in our hormones, our changes in our chemistry will cause us to just want and do Mm -hmm. crazy things. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're in that situation and you kind of recognize, okay, I went off my sleep schedule. I'm off the wagon with my diet at the moment. Does it make sense to take a nap to help with that sleep deprivation? Yes. So it absolutely can. Research supports optimal nap time, napping time to be somewhere between about 20 minutes and 30 minutes. And there is some research that also supports a longer nap for some can also be helpful as long as an hour. And it just kind of depends on the person. So we're all our own independent chemical factories, essentially. So it just really depends. And the time of the day will depend and vary from person to person. So when you take your nap, how long you're napping for, it's kind of like a trial and error thing that you just have to do for yourself and see. And you'll know if you sleep for too long, then you'll wake up, you'll feel groggy, maybe you'll be irritated, irritable, or moody, or whatever. And then you'll know that you need to adjust it. Maybe the nap was too long. Maybe it wasn't long enough. Maybe it was the wrong time during the day. But you can incorporate naps. And they do find that as we age, taking a 20 to 30 minute nap like midday actually helps regulate the circadian rhythm a little bit better. I'm not exactly sure why that is. There is research to support that. If you are not a napper and find that if you take naps and it is not helpful or it doesn't work for you, there's also the concept of restorative downtime. And it's essentially time that you take to downregulate your body, get yourself in that relaxed sort of state so that your body is able to rest a bit and sort of conserve the energy that it has for the day. So whether or not you actually fall asleep or not is sort of the difference between an actual nap and restorative downtime. For the nap specifically, what's important about it is getting into that light sleep stage. So that's the sleep stage right before REM sleep. So you're not in REM or deep sleep. You're in that stage right before, which is essentially like a regenerative sort of space where you can get some extra energy. In other countries, like for example, Japan, you can take a nap at work. They have that built into their (laughs) workforce because it increases productivity. People are able to regenerate from taking a 20-minute nap and then bust out, bang out the rest of their day and get more done, then it makes sense to do so. It's interesting when you see how other places have kind of embraced the importance of things more so than others. It's always interesting to see how that works for them. Yeah. And our culture, it's, we'll just go grab another stimulant, whether it's caffeine or sugar or something, something to boost you through the afternoon and then you feel like crap later 
as your body right. goes down from it. Absolutely. And it, I mean, it's, it's sad because I mean, these are all really big presses on stress. It's just chronic high stress all the time. We're not sleeping. And then because we're tired, we're looking for these things to keep pushing the envelope forward as opposed to saying, hey, I need to pull back and relax and chill for a bit. And a lot of that really couples right back into regulating blood sugar because when stress is high, when adrenaline is high, when cortisol is high, glucose in the body is high without actually even eating anything. But then we drink coffee that's highly caffeinated and that increases cortisol even more. Or we start eating sugary foods and carb loading all kinds of stuff. And then that's going to raise blood sugar even more. And then we enter into this realm of insulin resistance and prediabetes and diabetes and Alzheimer's now referring to as type 3 diabetes. So we know that that also has implications on neuroinflammation. So it's really a very essential, vital, pivotal point in health when you think about that it really is something that impacts everything full circle. They have these really cool sleep tracker smart rings. Have you ever seen these? No. Are you going to show me? (laughs) (laughs) They're not cheap. They're like $300. Nothing is cheap these days. I know. But I'm assuming what happens is that you put this on your finger when you're sleeping, synced up with your smartphone, and it translates your body signals and you can then track it to see what's going on. Helps track your temperature, measures your heart rate. It looks like an interesting thing. Uh, I don't think that price point is very attainable for people. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's expensive. I will try to find a less expensive option. (laughs) There's got to be something less than $300 that we could use. A lot of the fitness watches on the market monitor sleep to an extent. Everything that we use really to monitor as opposed to actually enrolling yourself in a sleep study. And even then, we're always estimating. So that's something that you want to sort of keep in mind because they're using things like your heart rate to kind of figure out where where you are throughout the throughout the night, like what stage of sleep you're in. But like the Fitbit watch will monitor sleep. Your Garmin watches will monitor sleep. I think the whoop strap or bracelet thing that will monitor your sleep as well. Lots of different ways to track your sleep, which is kind of cool. Technology could be good. What's your sleep routine like? It's pretty shitty. Uh, I mean, I've, I've really gotten into doing my skincare routine about an hour before I go to bed. So that kind of helps me now relax and get ready. And it doesn't stop me from being on my devices, however, (laughs) but it is definitely, you know, I'll have had my cup of tea or I'll have had some water and then I'll do my skincare. And then I'm usually in bed by 11. But at this point, depending on how tired I feel, sometimes I'm I want to read a book or I want to watch a quick video and that's where I get into trouble because I feel like doing that, like I'll turn the light off and then sometimes it might take me an hour to like actually fall asleep, fall asleep. I'll be in that state of like restorative downtime. Like I won't be moving. I won't be thinking about anything, but I'm still just awake and that can take up to an hour sometimes for me to fall asleep. And yeah, sometimes what happens is, you know, if Rob's still moving around the house at 11, 30, 12, <laughs> that, that could keep me up, but. Breathing. Breathing. <laughs> heavy mouth breathing. <laughs> is wheezing heavy mouth breathing. Just him doing his own nighttime routine. You know, he, he definitely goes, he usually goes to bed a little bit after me, um, but not every night. Sometimes I'm the one that's up. It just, it just depends. What I do find is when I'm up late past 11.30 and then I finally fall asleep, the next day I feel really, really drowsy around 3 p.m. And I have to fight the urge to have some type of caffeine or, you know, I'll crash out for like an hour and take a nap. But then there's yeah, that so- all, then the cycle happens if I take too long of a nap, then I'm up late again. So it's like this weird, yeah. weird cycle. And so it takes a couple of days for me to break that cycle. Yeah. The afternoon crash is uh, is pretty common. I'd say the things that I've seen it be more commonly associated with, 
dehydration, not drinking enough water throughout the day, poor blood sugar regulation, maybe needing a snack that's got a good amount of protein and not as much carbohydrate in it can be really helpful for that. It sounds like you're kind of making it to bed in that optimal range. So what they've described as sort of optimal bedtime is somewhere between about 10 and 11 p.m. And then aiming to get no less than seven hours, hopefully somewhere between eight and nine hours of sleep. And then the optimal wake time is somewhere between about like six and eight a.m. in the morning depending on the season. All of that can definitely vary, but when I'm counseling patients about their sleep routine, we kind of go through what their current routine is, and then we talk about how to create a better routine and also create awareness around the fact that it takes time to wind down and get ready for bed. Like for me, my bedtime routine starts like two or three hours before I actually am going to sleep. It starts with dimming down the lights and I've got salt lamps and things. So red light actually is really good for stimulating melatonin production. So if you're going to have lighting in the evening, having sort of that pink reddish hue glow can be really great. And then just keeping it sort of dim and light, making sure you've got the right temperature going. So whether or not you've got central air, you're going to use an AC or you've got chili pad or whatever, finding a way to sort of cool down the room or cool your body down is really helpful. If you take a hot shower before you go to sleep, that warm water will bring the heat in your body to the surface of the skin and release it. So that's one way that you can actually get your body to cool itself down. So taking a nice warm bath or shower before bedtime, that can be really helpful as well. And then as far as what gets you ready. So this can kind of depend. Some people are more sensitive to light and sound than others. For me, if I've got a lot of things on my mind, I will want to watch something, but I'll also know that having that light stimulus is not going to help me. So I'll usually opt to listen to music or listen to a podcast really low, just so that it's kind of something to override that noise in my head or whatever's going on. Um, For other people, you know, it might be a sound machine or white noise, like a fan running or something like that can be helpful. I recently just bought myself a silk face mask, which I love because it goes right, it's right up there with my silk pillowcase (laughs) that I now sleep on, which has been great because nice for your skin. It's not going to dry out your skin. It's blocking out any additional light. It's like nice and soft. And it's much better in terms of temperature regulation than cotton, actually. You know, creating that space of sleep is really important. And it's hard to create that divide. I really struggle with it. I read in bed. I work in bed. I do all kinds of, I don't know, maybe it's because I lived in a studio for so long. I'm just used to my bed being the center of the universe where I just am used to doing everything on my bed. I'm like, oh, I have other rooms in the house. You know, I don't need to be eating in my bed and watching movies and organizing my papers and reading my mail (laughs) and working on my laptop. It's like, why do you have a living room? It's like, I don't know. I just bring everything into my room for some reason. (laughs) It's just what I'm used to doing. But creating that separation is really important. Your bed is for sleep and for sex really. That's that's really all it should be happening in that room. And that is really what helps teach your body to, you know, you want to make those associations, right? Because if it's associating your room as this multitask room, you go in there and you're sitting there just like, ooh, what can I do? You know, (laughs) as opposed to if you just go in there to sleep, or mm-hmm. to have sex and you're like, well, if I'm in here by myself, I guess I'm going to sleep <laughs> or not. I don't know. I mean, it depends on, it depends on what day of the week it is, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So creating that divide is definitely really important. Also jumping back again to digestion. So this is an important one in terms of, so you don't want to be eating right before you go to bed, but you also don't want to have too large of a fasting window because if you stop eating too soon before you go to bed and then you're going to sleep for eight hours and then, you know, maybe not eat breakfast for the first 
one or two hours after you wake up, you can have what's called nocturnal hypoglycemia where your blood sugar tanks in the evening and it can jolt you awake basically because your body, your blood sugar will drop in the evening while you're sleeping and then your body will send a surge of cortisol as a compensatory mechanism and it'll wake you up. And so symptoms of nocturnal um, low blood sugar can be things like waking up, sweaty, hot, and clammy. You might be shaking or trembling. You can have changes in your breathing. Your heart rate might shoot up. You might have a nightmare that wakes you up. That can be another sign. So making sure that you're not skipping meals or waiting too long or um, cutting off your eating too soon before you go to bed. And so if you're someone who likes to have dinner early, I eat dinner relatively early, somewhere between like five and six, but sometimes I don't go to bed till like 11 or 12 because things just come up. So if that happens, just know when you start hitting that four to six hour mark after you've had your meal, you're probably going to start feeling hungry again. Your blood sugar is probably getting pretty low. And there is where it would be appropriate to have a little nighttime snack. But you want to make sure that that nighttime snack has a good amount of protein not a ton of saturated fat. It can have some other healthy fats in it and just a little bit of carbohydrate. So you want a nice balanced snack before you go to bed. And that'll help regulate your blood sugar through the evening while you sleep, which is important for staying asleep as well. All those little things, all those little nuances and hormones, they make all the difference and mm -hmm. controlling our blood sugar, which in tandem also helps regulate insulin. And we know that insulin is fat promoting. So if we're not getting enough sleep, then we can also just see an increased propensity for holding on to fat, weight loss resistance, visceral fat goes up. So fat around the midsection, um, those can all be of issue. Another thing is exercise. Exercise can be good before bed, but it's got to be the right kind of exercise and it's got to be the right amount of exercise, just like with everything else. And again, this can completely depend on the person, but I mostly don't recommend anything too high intensity before going to bed because again, exercise is a stressor. It's a physical stressor on the body. So when that happens, it's ramping up cortisol. So if you have a super high intensity workout before you go to bed, you just ramped up your cortisol and woke your whole body up basically doesn't mean that you can't go to sleep and have a good night's sleep it just means that it's going to take more to get you to that space so if you're doing that like an hour or two before bedtime now it's going to take four hours to get you ready for bed as opposed to just that two so you could do something that's more light to moderate intensity and impact doing something like yoga with some gentle stretching or some breathing incorporated into that can be really nice if you're trying to get movement in before bedtime because some people have to do it because of their work schedule or whatever so just be careful about what you select and then trying to stay away from that alcoholic beverage right before bedtime if you can push it up to dinner give yourself a good amount of time before bedtime to metabolize the alcohol and not have it impact your sleep can be really helpful and then again just making sure that you're having that alcoholic beverage with a balanced meal that's going to provide protein, healthy fats, and fiber and all of that. It's really important. When we travel mm -hmm. and we travel into another time zone, like we travel back east, it takes a good, I don't know, 40 hours for me to adjust. And it's the stress of travel is one thing, the dehydration of being on a plane. I don't get a good night's sleep for like two nights when I travel. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I, I've yet to figure out a good system or a schedule to like get my rhythm back quicker. Yes, that's a tough one. I've heard good things about using light therapy and red light therapy for resetting circadian rhythm with uh, jet lag. I've never used either one myself. Typically what I do when I travel that I find that helps with that is I kind of try to start mimicking the schedule a little bit before I fly out. I might be waking up a little bit earlier and being a little bit more tired, but then knowing that once I get to wherever I'm going, I can go to sleep at kind of a decent time or transitioning and then doing things that sort of kind of keep with your 
typical rhythm. So that might be something like wearing an eye mask, even though maybe it's still light outside, but going to bed at a certain hour until your body has that time to adjust. So just sort of keeping in mind that those, depending on the different stimuli that's available, the light and the dark, you can mimic that. It's a good way to kind of trick your body a little bit into what it should be doing at when, right? Mm -hmm. You can also go the supplemental route. I mean, that's always an option. We find that with people who have a difficult time sleeping, whether it's difficult time falling asleep, difficult time staying asleep, difficult time falling asleep would be if it's taking you more than about 30 minutes on average to fall asleep would qualify um, as that. And then if you're waking up more than once in the evening while you're trying to sleep that seven to nine hours, that would be poor quality sleep. But what relationships we see, high carbohydrate diets, can be coupled with that. And this is not in the context of endurance athletes. So they don't fall into that category. But we're talking more so about standard American diet, high carbohydrate, high saturated fat, low intakes of calcium, magnesium, and the fat soluble vitamins, which would be your vitamin A, your vitamin D, E, and K. We see low intakes of those nutrients to be associated with poor sleep. So do you recommend a vitamin supplement for that? You can. So best route to go is to test as opposed to guess. But you can also guess and trial and error and see what feels good to you. Typically things that help support sleep are your B vitamins, zinc, magnesium, omega-3s, and then tryptophan. If you think back to all your Thanksgiving dinners, you know, when you eat all that turkey, well, turkey's very rich in tryptophan and that makes you sleepy. So tryptophan you can find in chicken, turkey, eggs, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, things like that. Your omega-3s are going to be in your fatty fish like salmon. You can remember the acronym SMASH. Those are your high omega-3, low mercury fish. Those are your sardines, mackerel, anchovies, salmon, and herring. So you're three hours ahead of me. So you're you're coming up on seven o'clock and you're feeling a little sleep deprived. Does that mean you're just going to go to bed early now? No, I actually took a nap earlier after researching the stuff about naps. <laughs> and I do feel pretty good, but I also just have poor brain functioning on this, like just a normal daily occurrence. Anyhow, you can supplement with your omega-3s as well. So you can take like a fish oil supplement or something like that. Brand-wise, Nordic Naturals, I absolutely love. They've got wonderful quality quality supplements for fish oil. If you are vegan or vegetarian, you don't want to eat fish or take a supplement that's derived from fish, Nordic Naturals has an algae-based omega-3 supplement, which is very good. Another question that comes up are food sources in terms of the vegetarian arena. So we're talking about things like flax seeds, hemp hearts, chia seeds, and things like that. They are rich in ALA. And what's difficult about that is it has to go through a conversion, essentially. And most people aren't great converters. So even though you might be incorporating tons of flax meal and vegetarian sourced omega-3 sources may not be getting converted efficiently. And I would say probably for most vegans, vegetarians that are not eating fish, they should be supplementing without a doubt. Chances are that they're not getting enough is like upwards in the 90% realm. So supplementing with the algae omega is a good idea. And I really find what works really great for me is a magnesium glycinate supplement somewhere between about 200 and 400 milligrams taken in the evenings, really great for relaxation. Got botanicals that are really helpful as well, like chamomile, lemon balm is really great. Other supplements great for relaxation and just getting you into that nice sleepy realm. L-theanine is a really great supplement. Again, that's somewhere between 200, 300 milligrams if you're going to take that. And melatonin. So you can supplement with melatonin. Most people for sleep supplement with too much or and or they have a poor quality melatonin supplement. You really don't need more than 0.5 to 2 milligrams of melatonin to help you with your sleep. And what will 
not only be helpful in terms of the dose, but getting a sustained release melatonin. So you don't want it just released all at once before you go to bed. That'll knock you out, sure, but we want you to go to sleep and then we want you to stay asleep. So the sustained release melatonin will deliver it over the course of your sleep time. If you take too much melatonin, again, you can have really crazy dreams. That's a very common side effect. Or you can wake up feeling kind of spacey, groggy, and out of it. Some will need more melatonin than others. I'm not saying that that's something that doesn't occur. If you're deficient in melatonin, you might need to supplement with more. Again, you want to test and not guess. So that can be something. But the key to that, the answer, the solution to that isn't to just take lots of melatonin, right? We want to figure out why is it low and what can you do to get production up? The melatonin is essentially as a supplement is like a band-aid. It's just supplementing what's happening to get you into the right space so that you can then let your body take over what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. What do you think about CBD for sleep? CBD is really great for relaxation. So you have what's called the endocabinoid system in your body. And that system has been very widely researched over the last few years and how CBD and THC impact uh, that system. And they've seen really good research come out for lowering inflammation, creating states of relaxation, helping with pain management. You've got pain receptors in there as well. So that can be something that's helpful also if you've got chronic pain issues and that pain is increasing stress and creating that space of high anxiety as well, not allowing you to get comfortable to go to sleep, something like CBD can be beneficial as well. Just like any other supplement, quality, you want a good quality CBD supplement. Um, They're not all created equal. They're not well regulated. So we have problems in terms of is what I'm getting what I'm getting? Is the amount that it says I'm getting what I'm getting? All of those can be questions if you're not getting a good quality supplement. A CBD supplement that I really enjoy and recommend is by Coyote River. They are a really nice supplement. And again, the trial and error route is always available to everyone, clearly. I mean, you can go and oftentimes you really do get what you pay for. If you're buying some kind of supplement for $5 at Walmart or whatever, the chances are that that supplement's going to really work for you. Probably not that great. It could. And if it does, then great. Typically, it will cost a decent amount of money to get a good quality supplement and have it do what you want it to do without having to take massive quantities of it or without having it like some people will feel really weird because it might be that they're getting too much. So it'll just depend. Awesome. We covered a lot. Did we? I I don't know. So We've been talking (laughs) for almost an hour. So I feel like we covered quite a bit. Thanks for listening. And next time we'll talk about how stress impacts our daily lives and some tricks to help manage it. Thank you everyone for joining us and we will be sure to include links in our show notes in terms of some good sleep resources, articles, books, and podcasts. So be sure to check that out. Enjoy. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and follow me on Instagram at nutritive.rituals and don't forget to subscribe. We're available anywhere you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc.